This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Thanks for joining us on this edition of America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Pegues. This is another one of those weeks where there are so many topics that I'd like to discuss, but we only have, as you know, a finite amount of time. For example, among the topics, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and those recordings of his reaction to what happened on January 6th and how he was critical of Republican members of Congress that he needs support from right now as the midterm elections approach. There are already a lot of polls out there that show the Republicans winning back Congress, which means McCarthy could be Speaker, a job that he has coveted for a long time. But is that now in jeopardy with those recordings? We'll talk about that. How about what Harvard did this past week, revealing the results of an examination of its ties to slavery and pledging $100 million to, in essence, make amends? Isn't enough. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that, too. First, though, Elon Musk and Twitter. The world's richest man is poised to take control of the social media giant. Is this really about free speech? Or is it about one man having control of Twitter to, I don't know, attack his critics? Teddy Downey is my guest. He is the executive editor at the Capitol Forum, which provides investigative news and analysis of mergers and acquisitions. Teddy, thanks for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. I've been, of course, reading all of the analysis of Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. I want to get your take, though. What what do you think this means for Twitter? Well, it's an unusual deal in terms of uh, the financing. $13 billion in in additional debt that Twitter is going to take on, which will lever it up close to 10 times its profit. I think that's probably where you think, okay, there's going to be some pressure on Twitter, the company to cut costs, fire some people and try to figure out additional ways to make money because that's a lot of debt that they're going to be taking on. And it's in that respect, it's like a private equity takeover where you're making it a lot more difficult to just run the operation as is and it's going to require some changes. So that's probably what you're looking at in terms of from a financial standpoint, where the pressure will be on, on Twitter changing its, its business. And then, you know, obviously the rest of the financing is pretty unusual as well in that you got 12 and a half billion pledged against $60 billion of Musk's Tesla stock. And then there's another $20 billion that we don't exactly know where that's going to come from. Presumably Musk selling more Tesla stock. So in that respect, in the respect of them taking on a, a lot of additional debt, it's probably not good. But if you don't like it, if you don't like the way Twitter's run now, 
you know, you could certainly expect a different direction from Musk. So maybe if you're a shareholder, at least you probably, you might be okay with the, the premium that is being taken out at. All right. So how has Twitter been run? I mean, is it, is it a company that's making a profit? There's a lot of criticism of it, but it depends on how you want to judge it. You know, the share price has been stagnant for years, but, you know, they make billions of dollars in pretty consistent revenue. And it's a very influential when it comes to experts being on the platform. It's a very important public square for debate, uh, particularly when experts are weighing in. So it depends exactly how you're evaluating it. But certainly they don't have the same type of problems that bigger social media companies have. Uh, For example, Facebook and and uh, YouTube and Google, for example, you know, Facebook uh, and, and Google, they're, they have allegations that they're, you know, harming the public health, hurting teenage girls' image, uh, and leading to genocide in certain countries, fostering disinformation. Twitter has that on a much, much lower scale. And you could argue that maybe they did that because they're more cautious. They haven't tried to grow in the same ways they've tried to be a little bit more reasonable when it comes to the types of conduct they'll allow on the network. So it depends how you look at it, but you know, from my standpoint, looking at the public interest, I, I think it's been run pretty well compared to the other social media companies. What about the public interest in taking it private? Isn't, isn't that what Elon Musk wants to do here? I think the public interest, I think the real issue when it comes to Elon Musk is, is Elon Musk running going to run Twitter from in the public interest or in the interest of Musk's other wealth, uh, in the interest of SpaceX, in the interest of Tesla? You've already had pretty, I think, astute uh, questions asked about whether or not China will have more influence over Twitter because so much of Musk's business uh, at Tesla comes from China. That's a that's a perfectly legitimate question. And then you have a, a broader question, which I think you know probably won't come up with from a regulatory standpoint, but it probably should. You know, is it right that massive defense contractor, you know, Musk owns SpaceX, was a massive defense contractor, owns an uh, important social media company? Was it okay that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post? Do we want billionaires to be controlling? to be making important decisions about speech, you know, buying companies and doing what they want with them rather than having some kind of more robust uh, criteria for how those firms operate and are regulated. So I now to me, that's the really important question is, you know, should these billionaires with all these other obligations and interests and incentives be trusted with critical communications infrastructure? I think the answer is no. You don't think so. I think it's a dangerous, dangerous, and bad idea. All right, bad idea. Why do you think it's a dangerous, dangerous, bad idea? Uh, Well, you know, if you think about it a slightly different way, you wouldn't want Raytheon and you wouldn't want Lockheed Martin owning a newspaper or owning a social media company. You know, people think that, oh, that's, that's probably wrong. You know, they, they'd have an incentive for, you know, the country to go to war and increase their defense spending and 
you know, that's probably pretty obviously a bad thing. But, you know, Amazon is a major defense contractor through AWS, um, as is SpaceX. You know, so from my standpoint, the law in the country has been very, has been very skeptical of having a lot of conflicts when it comes to media ownership. The FCC has a history of, you know, prohibiting owning different types of media, um, radio and TV in a, in a specific area, specific region, because they don't want any one person having too much power in a, in a given market. And what we have here is much, much bigger problem than those problems were ever even considered in terms of a regional importance. These, these, uh, you know, social media companies have the ability to push out propaganda and dangerous information on a scale never before seen in human history, which is why you have these societal issues like uh, genocide and, you know, public health problems and disinformation and, and, you know, threats to democracy. And so, you know, do you want to have democracy or do you want to let Elon Musk own Twitter and Jeff Bezos own the Washington Post? I mean, that's kind of to me, the decision that we as a society are facing. Well, there are some people who believe Mr. Musk uh, believes that central to his vision for the service is for it to be an inclusive arena for free speech. Do you believe that? It's just hard for me to tell. I mean, that's a good goal, I suppose, but it's Musk's definition of free speech. Also, you know, social media platforms are not, they're not liable for a lot of the things that go on on their network. And so free speech is controlled on a lot of other forums by, or limited in respects, different respects by the law. And so you can't libel people in the media. You can't, there are myriad laws that constrain free speech you know, is he going to abide by those? Um, there are new laws being put on social media platforms. There's law enforcement, there's privacy law, there's antitrust law, there's antitrust enforcement. There are, you know, laws to protect vulnerable populations like children. Musk has a reputation of flaunting the law, mocking the SEC, being antagonistic toward safety regulators. This is not a person who respects the rule of law, at least from my following of his career to date. And so do I think, do I think it's credible that he's going to obey the law and follow the law and do, you know, run Twitter responsibly in, in, in the way that we think of free speech uh, and the, you know, reasonable constraints on it? Probably not, but it is a good thing to care about free speech. It's just that I don't think Elon Musk should be entrusted in enforcing it. Do you think it's possible (laughs) that we're all overthinking this, that his acquisition of Twitter is going to be, you know, the the company won't change that much. Uh, The controls over the company won't change that much. The controls over what people say or post won't change do you think it's you know because it's elon musk had it been some other billionaire we wouldn't have there wouldn't have been this sort of i don't know if it's even fair to call it a backlash but there's certainly been a lot of discussion a lot of criticism of elon musk do you think it's all 
all of us overreacting. I don't rule out the possibility that Elon Musk could buy Twitter, make it more profitable, and somehow solve social media problems uh, with disinformation and 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 claims of censorship. But I don't I don't think he's going to do either of those things. It just I, my guess is that he's not going to be good at running the company just because I don't see him as having any expertise in it. But in terms of overthinking it, I think all the things we've been talking about are perfectly intelligent things to consider. Is China going to have more influence over Twitter because Musk owns it, because Musk needs China for Tesla business? That seems like a perfectly good question to ask. And overthinking it, no, you can't overthink these things. You're you're transferring power of essential communication facility over to a an erratic billionaire. That that can't be overthought in in my opinion. That that deserves a lot of attention. It deserves public debate. It deserves close regulatory scrutiny. And it's going to get all of those things. And meanwhile, this all assumes that this deal, which is kind of weirdly structured from a financial standpoint, is going to happen in the end. And I think there's decent chance that it won't. So overthink it? No, I don't think you can overthink it. Teddy Downey, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Kirk Montaki is a leader of the consortium called University Studying Slavery. He is also a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Kurt, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Yeah, so what do you make of Harvard's findings? Uh, well, so uh, as a historian who's led a project here at the Univer University of Virginia for almost a decade, I was not at all surprised by the findings and actually pretty aware of much of the history of uh, really all the elite early universities in the United States. They all, uh, if founded before 1865, uh, have a story about human bondage um, connected to their own history. So that part wasn't very surprising. Harvard had actually had an earlier report, uh, I think in 2014, about slavery at the university. This, uh, this new report had a second piece that was really looking at the long legacy of intellectual production uh, at Harvard that was really embedded in the racist sciences. And uh, same thing, not at all surprising from the work uh, that I had done here at the university. So I wasn't surprised by the findings, but I'm always uh, excited when a university uh, is unafraid to turn the microscope on itself and do this kind of uh, examination of its past. Well, what, what does that kind of examination of the university's past typically reveal about the university and not only its past but its future i think on the uh, it, uh we'll talk about the past and the present first we're, we're wrestling in the present with uh, every school has a series of sort of foundational myths about what it is and how it came to be and those are th they're myths right they're tied up in myth and memory they're not actually serious histories of the university uh, the example here at UVA was 20 years ago, if you had visited the university, you would have been told Thomas Jefferson built the university himself. And so this work is about actually right, turning the lens of history onto the archive 
and getting a better understanding of just what the real broader history of the university is. And uh, a lot of this is often difficult, that we have to come to terms with uh, the fact that human bondage is a, a central thread in American history, and so it's not surprising that it's at universities. I think when we get to the present and future, this is really about being a 21st century university where we are going to live up to our very clear stated um, educational vision and mission that uh, every university sees itself in some way as a right a creator of tomorrow's global engaged citizen leaders. And if we can't stop to understand our own past and look at our surroundings and our own history a little differently, it makes it really hard to become the 21st century university that's creating these, again, thoughtful, engaged global citizens that understand a diverse world. And it, it also makes it hard for universities to be places that welcome a more diverse student body, right? That many of the elite early universities were really for white men of property. And that's not who they serve today. I can hear the criticism, you know, loud and clear um, from people who say, oh, this is just political correctness run amok um, and all sorts of other criticisms about this kind of um, discovery, this kind of acknowledgement. Um, is it just universities trying to be politically correct to, to quiet the criticism that they they did have a, a slavery in its past. I, I don't think so. Um, again, we're, we're educators. And when you're sitting at a university and you're looking to work with students and help them understand a complicated past, um, the first place that you turn is to your own archives. And so it, every project need not be uh, about revealing a difficult history. It's about investigating and understanding our own institution's past. And really, if you look at many of these projects, that's where they're born. The, the first pieces of these projects start in the classroom. So this is Sven Beckert at Harvard. Uh, oh my gosh, over a decade ago, right, running a series of seminars with students looking at slavery in the university's history. He's a scholar of slavery. This is a perfectly legitimate way to educate students on what are the tools of the historical trade? How do you perfect the craft? And in doing that, right, they revealed a story that wasn't consonant with kind of the foundational myths about Harvard. Uh, the, the work here at UVA is, is similar. The first paper on this came out of a, a history seminar paper in 1993 uh, that was, hey, go to the archives and let's tell us, let's look at the university's history and what this student discovered in 93 in just a 12 page paper was uh, details about how slavery was central to the building of the university. That was replicated again in 2005, 2006, when it was uh, then Ed Ayers and Maury McInnes. Same thing. They had a student do uh, a thesis that looked at slavery at the university. So the, the groundswell for this project often comes from individual student projects on the ground with professors in a discipline teaching them how to be historians. Um, that then, I think, often creates a groundswell. Students learn it. And as soon as you understand this history, right, you look at your landscape differently and you start to ask questions. 
Um, and I think that's what they're supposed to do at a university. So I think for us, a lot of this has been responding to uh, over now uh, two decades of students saying, we want you to tell a fuller story, right? We, we can talk about Thomas Jefferson as the founder of the university. We can talk about Thomas Jefferson as the author of the Declaration of Independence. But we also need to talk about the way, right, human bondage is baked into the built landscape here, the way that right, enslaved people not only did the hard work of digging ditches and leveling terraces, the enslaved person ran the chemical hearth in the chemistry laboratory. An enslaved person ran the anatomical theater where dissections were performed. So he prepared the bodies, right? The a team of enslaved laborers independently built the roofing systems uh, in many sections of our um, a landscape here. And I, I think those are really interesting stories that, right, um, it's not solely about making amends for a difficult past. And you often, in doing this work, learn stories that no one has talked about. Uh, to give one quick example, Henry Winter Davis, uh, right, a congressman from Maryland who's a radical Republican in Reconstruction, fighting to protect black citizenship in, in, in the immediate aftermath of emancipation um, is actually a UVA alum. He was not a, a radical Republican when he was a student. He was not a radical Republican uh, after he left UVA, but he becomes one over time because he came here, he received an education, and he was a lifetime learner, and his positions changed. So we learn narratives we didn't know about, and some of them are narratives that even in the 21st century, we can embrace and say, uh, these are really positive. And I think the Harvard report, right, does some of this, that it's this isn't just a story about slavery and racism at the university. It's also a story about right, supporters of abolition. So it's, uh, history is messy, history is complicated, and it requires us to roll up our sleeves. And what better way to do it than with professors and students in, in the classroom as the, you know, the genesis of these projects? Yeah, but you and I both know if you look at what's happening across the country, there are books being taken out of libraries. There is this debate over critical race theory, and we're not going to get into that, but a lot of people don't want to talk about history. And isn't this one of those instances where uh, you're looking at a his history, you're looking at a, a period in the past, which of course is history, you're looking at the past, you're in a way punishing the university for its past uh, in its present, if that makes any sense. There are a lot of people who don't agree with this, and you know that. Well, there are a lot of people who don't agree with it. But again, right, this this speaks to, I think you started with this. This is this is actually about modern politics, not about the work of history. And um, I think there's often a nearsightedness or a short-sightedness in understanding talking about this complicated past as only being something that's negative for the university. I, I I'm, I'm not convinced that's the case, right? There's a reason here at UVA we're still talking about this and doing this work because it turns out it's, again, it's, it's good for the educational brand. We're being honest, educated citizens, right? We built a memorial here. We built relationships with, with our community and with descendants. I, I, just, I, don't, I understand people will tell, will respond in the way you said, and I don't know that I have a good answer for them, but this, this isn't material that's bad for the brand. 
It's not material that alienates students. It actually right, brings in students. It, we reconnect with more alumni because of this work than we do lose alumni who are upset by it. So I, I, I think it's a really good and exciting work. Um, and I love watching, again, universities do what they do best, which is investigate, educate, and produce new knowledge. But have enough universities done this? And do you think that Harvard's stance here gives fresh momentum to other universities to look into their past? Well, I, I hope so. So, right, we all stand on the shoulders of Ruth Simmons when she was president of Brown University, right? She had she made the courageous decision now over 20 years ago that the university needed to do this and it needed to understand how the past shapes the present and think about, right, what are the moral dimensions of that dilemma? Um, so we all stand on her shoulders. This is work that's been going on for about 22 years. There are currently, including Harvard, in the consortium we founded here at UVA, uh, I've lost count, but it's over 90 schools in six countries, right? So this isn't a U.S. political project. Um, lots of schools are doing it. Um, that's only 90 schools. There are a lot more than 90 schools. I'm really excited um, with the Harvard report, right? Harvard is, uh, it, it, right, it's a heavyweight. And so when Harvard publicly does this kind of work, yeah, I think, I think it will encourage other schools to do this. And know that when we started the consortium now in 2015, one of the ideas was, when we're done, wouldn't it be neat if we didn't all do this in isolation, that we talked to one another and we shared guiding principles, we shared best practices, we shared creative ideas, and we also shared research because you learn very quickly, right? Universities have never existed in isolation from one another. So I, I've been excited to watch it geographically expand and grow. And I'm, I'm hopeful that more universities We'll tap into this and we'll be able to build a network. Uh, to give you a couple examples, right? We had a professor here at UVA, William Barton Rogers, who uh, leaves UVA and goes on to found MIT, right? And this is this is a story about bondage in Virginia. It's a story about uh, his work in um, you know natural philosophy and science, and how right we we can actually see the transmission of ideas from a Virginia campus to a Boston campus. Uh, we can follow this as we follow alumni out. So I think it's a really um, exciting area to, to be working in as more schools join in. Um, we're gonna learn more and make those connections. So to your question, no, I, I doubt enough schools do this work. I, I tend to ask people, the question isn't which schools should be doing this. The question really is which schools shouldn't be doing this. Um, right. You don't have to have been founded before 1865 to not sit on a uh, you know property that has this story in the soil. Right. So uh, Francis Marion University in South Carolina was founded in, I think, 1970 or 1971, but it sits on a plantation. Right. So there's archaeological work going on teaching students how to do archaeology. That's a story about slavery in South Carolina. Clemson University, right, the, not founded until the 1880s, but founded on uh, what was John Calhoun's former plantation. So right, a pro-slavery ideologue 
uh, and leading political figure in the uh, pre-1865 era. And then it's Thomas Clemson's land at that time, and he donates it to the university. And they use convict labor, often involving children, to build the university, right? So it has multiple stories to tell that are embedded in the buildings and in the landscape, and they're all opportunities for architectural history, archaeology, uh, you, you name it, history. There's just so much exciting work that can go on. So I, I really think we have to maybe flip the question and ask who shouldn't be doing this work. Well, I, I can appreciate your enthusiasm for this subject. But I also wanted to ask you, do you think this kind of work divides rather than brings people together? Uh, well, that's, <laughs> I, I think I'm, in most cases, no. Uh, I, I have really found it interesting to watch how here, and I'll speak to UVA, I can't speak to every university, but students, uh, the current generation of students, it's their education, it's their university, they're in a very different place than some of our alumni. They want uh, the university to do this work. They're excited by it. Um, I teach a class each semester. It's a two-semester sequence on using UVA and Central Virginia as sort of the case study for understanding slavery and race in, in American history. So we run you know, all the way from the beginning of the trade, and we look at how that plays out in Virginia. We look at the rise of the university. We talk about enslaved people. We, we, we talk about professors. We talk about education. There's a line out the door to get into the class every semester. Um, I think that speaks to it actually brings more students in than it re rejects. But right, hearing hard truths is hard. Uh, I, I, there, there's no way to do this perfectly. And I think we automatically assume that the old myths are somehow unifying. And I don't, I don't know that they are. I think that speaks to, right, there's a, generations of students after places like UVA and Harvard stop being really, right, largely the bastions of privileged white men uh, who don't feel connected to their school until their school starts to acknowledge these histories. So uh, I, I think it does more work there. I, I also think there's a way to do this, um, right? We, we haven't spent 10 years here at UVA telling students UVA is terrible. We've spent 10 years saying, Let's take let's let's examine this. Let's look at the records. Let's look at what people said and did. And let's try to understand what that world was like. And in that, it's inescapable. You can't talk about the early university history here without talking about slavery. But we can introduce students to literally to the voices, to letters written by people who've been enslaved at UVA. Right. These are the kinds of things that lurk in the archives that you ignore when you simply imagine the university uh, in our case, right, is sort of a cartoon where a bobblehead Thomas Jefferson single-handedly creates the idea, single-handedly designs the architecture, single-handedly creates an enlightenment curriculum, and then shapes the bricks himself. Well, but, but were those myths, as you uh, described them, was it marketing, uh, a way to just kind of, or was it a way to just kind of uh, erase the reality of what was happening during the time that the university was created. I think that's it's very complicated, right? I, the, the myths here about Jefferson start uh, right after he dies, right? So this is we are unpacking a nearly two hundred year history here, right? He dies in eighteen twenty six. 
university's only been open for about a year. And there's very quickly sort of a cult of Jefferson develops. I, and I think often it's complicated untangling where these myths all come from, but they become branding tools in our like late 20th century 21st century understanding, but they don't develop that way. Uh, I think they develop in uh, really uh, sometimes, again, I'm going to call them benign. Um, they end up not being benign, but I don't think students in 1830 in hailing Thomas Jefferson were doing anything but right lauding their university and connecting it to the American founding as they understood it. So, um, and to not get to the point of actually starting to question that myth until 1993, <laughs> right? Is that's a long time that that myth exists. And right, every school does this. Um, not all the myths and the cultish practices at universities are bad, right? Some of them are kind of cute and fun. Um, so it's not, I don't think this is about destroying the myth. It's just about interrogating it and, picking at that thread and going, there's really a much more complicated, much more interesting story. Back to Harvard. The school pledged $100 million to redress the injustices. Well, what does that mean? And how did they come up with that number? And and will it really you know, address some of these injustices? Well, so so I think it's, I think this, from my perspective, I think this is good news, right? Universities... Um, uh, right. I, to, to my mind, yeah, they probably do. Right. As America does in some way. I'm not going to define what this looks like, but they owe. Right. That this university, 4000 people between 18. We estimate 4000 people between 1817 and 1865 built, maintained. Right. They fed everybody. They built the walls. They built the classrooms. They cleaned the classrooms. They did everything. And the place is actually unimaginable without this. A community of enslaved people that isn't just at UVA. It's just unimaginable without them. They were held in human bondage. They weren't paid for their labor. When the war ended, the university uh, in that kind of early era of emancipation in fall 1865 began paying the same people the university had rented at the beginning of 1865, half of what they paid the enslaver at the beginning of 1865, right? So the, the story of low-wage segregated Virginia has its roots in the early process of emancipation. So the, the university, right, directly benefited from the unpaid labor of, of thousands of people for 50 years. It then benefited from, right, uh, the, the age of segregation, which made it really easy to, right, pay incredibly low wages to African-American workers at the university, um, right? That, that, that affects the bottom line. So I think, yes, we do owe uh, some kind of amends for that reality. To give you an example, the University of Glasgow in Scotland, right? They actually did a financial analysis. They looked at how the money that kind of founded the university, right? How it came in from people participating in transatlantic slavery, and they were able to literally trace the endowments over time for professorships, scholarships, and fellowships. And they were actually to come up, came up with a number, right? That this was about $16 million the university had that came from this, right, horrible 
uh, practice of human bondage and moving forced labor and my if I don't want to call it migration, but sending people across the Atlantic, this horrible system, right? That they can actually track that. I think even at a place like UVA, where our story is not directly tied to the transatlantic trade, we can look at the ways in which uh, and Harvard's report does this work, right? They look at how does what is the intellectual climate at the university? What are the, what's kind of the knowledge production that goes on? And what you see is right that knowledge production is it, it, one, it is shaped by the age of segregation. It be, it benefits from the age of segregation, and then it often becomes twisted to perpetuate the age of segregation. So. Here uh, in Virginia, we can see rather clearly the ways in which the university and knowledge production at the university comes to shape the early 20th century's ideas here in Virginia, which lead to right, the, the Immigration Restriction Act, um, the, uh, the Racial Integrity Act, and the Sterilization Act. Right? Those are ideas that are in part hatched and honed in the, uh, the academy here at UVA. Those have a profound impact on actual human beings, right? Actual people living in Virginia, um, right? We don't, uh, Virginia doesn't, its last sterilization is in the 1970s. These are forced state sterilizations. So I, I think in some way they owe, this is, I, I don't know what we do about it. This is an American problem, um, right? America needs to come to terms with this in some way. But I think universities offer a really interesting space where we can think creatively what, and, and I think Harvard is taking a, a nice stab at this, right? There aren't many schools in the US that have actually really committed to any kind of reparative process beyond um, symbolic, right? Building memorials, creating community engagement, right? Doing real listening projects with the community to start to build a new relationship and right, at least acknowledge that we now understand how right this history here in Charlottesville, right? The, when you go out into the community, the university when we started, it may still be, was often referred to as the plantation or the big plantation, which I think is a powerful metaphor for how the university has functioned for minoritized communities here. Um, so I, I think we do owe in some way, but I think uh, if we sit back and wait for Congress or the executive branch to do anything, we're not going to get anywhere. Why don't we look at our, again, we're back to our own strategic visions and missions. What are the things we do? If we are creating engaged future global citizen leaders, right? Maybe the first thing to do is teach them how to listen teach them how to engage with a, a diverse public, teach them that universities uh, right, aren't walled off from the communities they exist in, and encourage them to interact with students at other schools, learn new ideas. And I think what the Harvard program uh, is proposing as a reparative gesture starts to gesture at that, right? This is, um, I, I, I think it's limited. Uh, it's I would like to see something... Um, you know, more profound. But again, I, I'm not upset by what Harvard's doing. It's at least it's named a dollar figure. It's suggested a way to do this that's, again, consonant with what universities do. I think that's great. You bring up a lot of very good points. And as I read through what Harvard is pledging to do, one of the initiatives is 
and expansion of partnerships with historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Um, under this plan, Harvard would pay for HBCU faculty members to spend a summer, semester, or school year in visiting appointments on the Cambridge campus. Big deal. It That just does not sound like a lot to me. And, and what you were just talking about, I think it's pretty easy. I mean, we've... It's, that is this week's America Changed Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in, in District Productive. As, as you can download and review this podcast. And the fact that it's been Check so your hard listing to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Country. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Jeff Begays, like and that were, is how America um, changed forever. Forbidden from owning in, in certain neighborhoods, uh, the type of segregation that existed. So why don't these universities with, and Harvard I'm sure has a multi-billion dollar endowment, take some of that money and invest in the future of some of these underserved communities just around Cambridge? I'm sure that would make a bigger uh, have a bigger impact on communities of color rather than just having a, a faculty exchange for a semester. Well, yes. Uh, so I agree. I will say, right, it, it does at least offer one other piece, right? There's actually this Du Bois Scholar Program that, uh, as I read it, right, will invite juniors from HBCUs. They'll get uh, basically a, something close to a free ride at Harvard for a semester or a year. And Harvard students apparently may also have the opportunity to go do the same at HBCUs. So it does involve students, but I, I agree, right? This, this is limited. I think what's important is it's Harvard, right? This is the most recognizable university in the world, uh, right? With a, I believe it's $54 billion endowment right now. Um, the fact that they're committing money at all, even if just as you've described, right, it's deeply limited, it, it is symbolic in some way. It's a start. If that engenders a conversation that allows us to continue to think more creatively about how to do repair, um, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, as a note, the consortium for, what, five years now has been working on a plan that came out. And I think this is important. What I would, would have liked to see in the Harvard report was we're going to take this money and we're going to sit down with HBCUs and let them define how this money right can best be used. Um, so, I, so I think working with HBCUs is a great idea, but what we've been talking about um, in the consortium, and this came out of Tougaloo College, so I don't want to take any credit here other than helping shape it and promote it, uh, but this is John Rosenthal at the Tougaloo College Development Fund. He was here in 2017 on a panel about repair, sat down with me and said, I've got this idea. What, what if we instead network, right? What if this was these large, wealthy universities actually all pitched in, paid into a virtual center that could do all kinds of amazing things to support the HBCU mission, right? So now we're getting at something much more systemic. This isn't about having faculty come and spend a semester at Harvard or students move around. This is about actually looking at what do HBCUs need to survive, right? And I think this is important. HBCUs are, in fact, right, they exist. They are themselves a legacy of, right, slavery and segregation. They come into existence because um, it, 
every state is right not really doing any effort to create um, serious schooling for freed people. Right in Virginia, segregates its schools in nine, or excuse me, in eighteen seventy. So we're five years after emancipation, and we know we're going to be at separate and unequal that early, even though the age of segregation right isn't really fully constructed here. So. HBCUs come into existence at the exact same time as a way to serve a need. Millions of freed people, they want the same thing every other American wants. They understand the value of education. We should be supporting HBCUs in that mission. And so this virtual center, the idea is let's make sure we're addressing their like financial viability. Let's make sure we are literally helping them as they need to be helped. And the, the Tougaloo project is thinking about federal research dollars and how do we direct more of that to HBCUs to support HBCUs. And in our discussions, we also talked about there's all these other things that these programs could do, right, uh, as a systemic network linking HBCUs and a whole bunch of universities. So I, 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 pardon me, I have to be a professional optimist after 10 years of doing this work, but I get excited. If, if Harvard can put in $100 million, what can we get from everybody else? And then you have right, real money that can be directed first at HBCUs. Maybe then it turns to schools, right? Brown University has done some of this work in Providence. So to your point about turn the money on right disadvantaged communities in Cambridge, absolutely. That that could be an expansion. I don't think we have to limit ourselves to the single brand, but if if Harvard's going to go out and do this, this is a good first step, uh, right? I'm talking to you today because they made some noise. So I'm I'm hopeful that we can do really start to do this work in a much more systemic way where universities collaborate and partner together, right? We can pilot and model how do you do effective repair that, right, benefits the communities, benefits communities in need that addresses the systemic issues that we're talking about. And again, is fully educational. I'm Again, it's easy for me to say my job is to think big about this. Um, But I, I think there's, I think this is a, an important step, even if it is deeply limited, uh, as you have suggested. Well, Kurt Von Dack, thank you very much for your time. I could, I could probably spend another six hours or so figuring out ways to spend Harvard's money, but (laughs) maybe on another day. (laughs) Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Turning now to the heat, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is getting from some members of his caucus. Listen to this. In the audio recorded just days after the January 6th Capitol attack and released by the authors of the new book, This Will Not Pass, McCarthy tells colleagues he's worried some House Republicans were endangering others. Tension is too high. The country is too crazy. I do not want to look back and think we caused something or we missed something and someone got hurt. Um, I don't want to play politics with any of that. So that is a clip of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy criticizing members of his own party for their behavior on and in connection with January 6th. Will that have an impact on his standing within the party as the midterms approach? 
CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarland joined CBS News streaming. The Republican leader called for unity among his members and a lot of his supporters in the House Republican conference called those audio tapes a distraction. But the political problem for Kevin McCarthy is those audio tapes reveal him being critical of people inside his own party, people from whom he'll need votes to remain the leader, and if Republicans take control of the U.S. House, to be the Speaker of the House. He also said this is serious stuff people are doing that has to stop. Well, he's putting people in jeopardy, and he, he doesn't need to be doing this. We, we saw what people would do in the Capitol, um, you know, and these people came prepared with, with rope, with everything else. He named names, specifically criticizing Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks, who spoke at the White House ellipse before Donald Trump on January 6th. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. And Matt Gates of Florida, the firebrand congressman who's long been critical of Kevin McCarthy. We spoke with Mr. Gates after meeting of the House Republican Conference yesterday, and he said he doesn't support Kevin McCarthy any more or any less than he previously did because of these audio tapes. Kevin McCarthy is taking some heat from the extremes in his party because of this audio from Congressman Gates and also from Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, a member of the House January 6th committee, who's long been critical of McCarthy for his response to January 6th. In the middle of his conference, he retained support, and at one point yesterday, from his colleagues on the Republican side, he got a standing ovation. The House January 6th committee has been clear. They want to talk to Kevin McCarthy. They want to talk to some of his colleagues who may have had Donald Trump's ear in the hours and days before January 6th. They want to know what Donald Trump was hearing and what Donald Trump was saying. They also believe that some members of the House Republican Conference were part of the planning of how to block that electoral college count January 6th. In fact, the committee's already released text messages from some House Republicans specifically instructing the White House is how to block the Electoral College count. So they want to talk to Kevin McCarthy. They want to talk to some of his colleagues. But it's a difficult thing to require one of your colleagues to appear before a congressional committee. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Also, don't forget you can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.